0: So we've been walking through these statements that Jesus made that oftentimes challenge us, push us. They don't always end up on our bumper stickers, on our T-shirts, or on our refrigerators because they don't look sometimes as pleasant or as fun as, you know, we don't stencil them in our kids' nursery. So we've looked at things like, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Nobody put that up in their kids' nursery, okay? You don't have a bumper sticker that says that, I'm pretty sure. But we, we also recognize that through church history, none of those guys wore eye patches. So apparently, he meant something maybe a little bit different in, contact, in context than that. And we've been walking through some of those things. And last week, it was a privilege to walk through. Some of the words he shared on the cross and how he declared that it is finished, it is paid in full, that the mission is accomplished and that he has done what the fathers called him to do so that you could be declared not guilty. He became guilty. And that was pretty controversial and pretty amazing. And today we're actually going to look at a question that Jesus asked. And this question is so powerful and controversial because based on how people have answered this question, the entire course of history in the last 2,000 years has changed on how people answered this question. There are some questions that are so epic, so large, so big that they drive our lives. They they direct us. They cause us to lose sleep at night. Sometimes we ask questions like, what's the meaning of life? And we think about those great big questions like that. Sometimes it's a question, uh, no matter what age you are today, you think, what am I going to do when I grow up? Some of you are are closer to that answer than others. But you wonder, what am I going to do when I grow up? Sometimes the epic question you ask is something like, are my kids going to turn out okay? What do I do if my kids don't turn out okay? And what is okay? And am I doing okay? And we ask these big epic questions like that. Sometimes we ask philosophical questions. Chicken or egg, guys? It's Easter. Which came first? (laughs) Right? Or how about this one? Can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? And we go round and round in circles. Or did that tree that fell in the forest make a noise? We ask these big, epic questions, and some of them add to our lives. Some take away. Some just waste the time of our lives. But uh, today I want to talk about a big, giant question that Jesus asked. And you heard it during the uh, worship set today. And the question was simply this. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter gets asked this question directly and has this amazing moment with Jesus. Now, what's funny is if you were to ask this question today all over the place, you'd get so many different answers. I was thinking this morning just about. No, I'm going to get lost. Here we go. I was thinking this morning just about how we're in a culture that is so PC contained, come on now, that I can put a flag of the Niners in front of my house and I will get less grief than if I put a cross in front of my house. Come on. How is that? It's okay to celebrate my team in my office, right? I can put up something about my favorite college or my favorite school and I can celebrate and I can cheer and I can post all over the uh, social media stratosphere how excited I am when they're doing something, but I gotta be cautious and tiptoe when I talk about my God. Whoo! and here's Peter, forced to ask and answer the question that we're gonna be asked today. Who do you say That I am. Now across the board, so many people would answer this differently. Some would say, I don't know if Jesus even ever walked the earth. To which I would say, that's a long historical conversation. But the evidence that he actually walked the earth is pretty profound. Some would say, well, he is a great teacher. And he taught great things, but there's no way that he is God. Others might say he's a prophet. In our text today, they said, well, maybe you're a prophet like Elijah. Maybe you're John the Baptist, a radicalized zealot who, you know, essentially is just screaming and declaring God. Was he a radicalized zealot? Some would say. But they might not say that he was divine. Others would say he was wise and a good teacher, but they may not say that he was divine that he was God or the son of God. You know, I I read recently a a quote from a pastor had gotten himself in some trouble because he said something that was pretty controversial in Christian world. He said, even if you don't believe Jesus is God, you could live a better life if you just obeyed his teachings. And it got him into some trouble because people were kind of on the fence on, on, well, you can't limit Jesus to just some good teachings. But the reality is many people have adopted over the last 2,000 years just teachings of Jesus and lived relatively better, improved lives. So some would say, there's a serious, I mean, whoever went wrong saying, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. Whose life ever tumbled over a cliff because they were working hard to deal with unforgiveness in their heart? Who ever really tanked their life by reconciling with their brothers and and thinking highly of other people and having compassion? And so some would say Jesus is an incredible source of good teaching. But Jesus looks at his closest followers and says, well, who, who, who do you say that I am? So we're going to explore that a little bit today as we continue to uh, walk through these radical things that Jesus said. I'm going to start in Matthew 16, and eventually we're going to get to John chapter 20. But you heard some of this already, that Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, first, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they get this smattering of answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, They were even open to the consideration that maybe he was a uh, uh, reborn prophet. But what about you, verse 15? And here's our question today. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Judah, Judah, Jonah. Come on now. Blessed are you. Let's try again. Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by a man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whoever you bind on earth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. I love this. Peter's faith was activated early in the process. He's the first one to put two and two together and declare it. He's been walking with Jesus for close to three years. He saw people get fed miraculously. He saw people get healed miraculously. They've been traveling, and the religious leaders of this time are very concerned at the popularity of this man that he walks around with. Why are they so concerned? Because whoever has the will and the heart of the people has the power and has control. And they're concerned that Jesus has increased in popularity. As a result, they've asked him questions to try to trip him up because they want that one-word answer that they could use to say, oh, guys, dismiss this guy. They didn't have Twitter or Facebook to post it on. They had to do word of mouth. But they were trying hard to get him on the record saying something that would discredit himself. And he had not done it. As a matter of fact, he had done something so amazing, so incredible. In John chapter 11, it tells us that he had actually gone. And there was a man who was very, very popular, who was well-known, who was wealthy, who had passed away. A man named Lazarus. You know the story. And he had gone. After three days, no, multiple days, about four days, I think even. And it said he was decaying and he stinketh. Man, it's the King James version. Sometimes King James is just better. There's more funny words in there. And Jesus went and he said, hey, Lazarus, get out of there. Come forth. And there were multiple people, families, an entire community who had heard about this amazing miracle. And you know what happened? The word of mouth started to spread and the people started to say, is this guy going to rise up and lead us? Is he going to become a military leader? Is he going to become a king? Is he a prophet? Is he going to direct us on what's going to happen next? And the amount of excitement and momentum that was surrounding Jesus began to swell. But no one had put together what he was actually there to do. Until Peter Looks him square in the eyes and goes, ding, 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 ding. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that is what it's about. Now, something happens here because Peter's faith gets activated. He gets excited. But soon after that, all of the momentum moves towards the cross. Jesus begins to unpackage for him. From this point on, it says in verse 21, it says from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Here's what happens to us sometimes. We experience a faith encounter with Jesus, and as soon as that happens— Or soon after that happens, things get difficult, things get confusing, things get challenging. And then we have to answer in not the greatest of circumstance, who do you believe Jesus is? Well, it didn't go so well for these guys. I'm going to allow one of the eyewitnesses of that account to give us a little bit of a summary of what happened after the cross.
1: called me a fool that day, but I'd been called worse. The others, they weren't there. Some of them hid. I imagine that some of them watched from a distance where they couldn't be recognized. But I didn't care if they saw me cry. I didn't care if they heard me scream. I wouldn't muffle it for them. I didn't care if they arrested me. I didn't care if they killed me. Because it would be nothing compared to what they did to my Christ. I wouldn't hide for them. He deserved my presence. He deserved my tears. It was the least I could do for him after all that he'd done for us. If I'm being honest, I didn't understand it. I was one of the many that had been healed by him. I loved Jesus with everything in me. It wasn't a matter of believing for me, but still the questions haunted me. Like, when was God going to step in? If Jesus was the Son of God, then why didn't he tear open the sky and rain down in judgment over his son's accusers and tormentors? As I sat there at the cross holding Mary, Jesus' mother, I knew that if her human strength had allowed her, she would have defended her son. So why didn't God? And then I heard his voice say, Father, forgive them. And in my human nature, I didn't understand that either. But that was his nature. That was what made him so different from us. And then the darkness came. And it wasn't a nighttime darkness, but it was a deep blackness that covered the middle of the day. And at first I thought, Surely this is God's great miraculous rescue to protect his son. But then, then Jesus spoke words that I can't even repeat. And then he surrendered his soul to his father. And then Jesus, the Messiah, breathed his last And then I knew that the darkness wasn't a cover for God's revenge. It was that even the sun knew enough to turn away from what we had done. Even the earth shook in the presence of the horrific nature of us. Nicodemus and Joseph came and took his body and they cleaned it and they wrapped it in linens of white and I followed them as they took it to the silent and cold sepulcher in the garden. And then I went home, (laughs) broken and wrought with grief and empty. This morning, my soul called for him. It missed him. I missed him. It had been two days since they rolled the stone in front of the tomb and they posted guards to keep watch. Just days ago, crowds of people were around him, feeling his miracles, but today they busied themselves like, like he didn't matter anymore. It was a thread of hope that pulled me from bed this morning. I didn't know what else to do with myself, so I gathered spices to take back and anoint him because they could pretend like he was gone and that he didn't matter, but I needed to be with him. I needed to be with his body at least. I didn't know how I was going to roll the stone away, but I didn't think that far ahead. It didn't stop me. And it's a good thing too because when I got there, somebody had already done it. Who had rolled the stone away? And And then the more pressing question, who had taken his body? I felt sick. I fell to my knees and cried, oh, God, who would further defile my lovely Lord? I ran to Peter and John and told them, and they came back to the tomb, and they went inside, but I couldn't. I stayed outside. I knew he was gone. And then then it sunk into me that he was gone. Peter and John left me there outside the tomb. And finally, in my weakness, I steadied myself on the rocks at the opening, thinking that I would go back in and at least be with the abandoned linens. But when I looked inside, there were two figures in there. And they said, why are you crying? Why was I crying? Someone has taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've taken him. And then the gardener from the garden came up behind me, and he said, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And I turned and begged, please, sir, if you know who's taken my Lord, just tell me so that I can go and get him. And then he said one word, and it was like a veil was lifted from my ears wasn't the gardener. It was Jesus. His face, his hands, his voice. I knew that voice. And he said, Mary. They hadn't taken him. He had risen. And never before had my name sounded so purposeful, so intentional. When they had called me a fool for believing, they'd called me a sinner for my past, but he called me child. He called me to follow and to love. He called me to be free. Today he called me for exactly what I was to him. Today, he called me Mary.
0: (laughs) You know, the events that followed that horrible Friday, which we call Good Friday now, They're interesting historically as we just explore who Jesus really is. So many things unique about that circumstance. One, that they took him off the cross at all. In that time, a cross was a punishment for a criminal. And a proper burial was not something they could expect. As a matter of fact, as horrific as it sounds, Rome would leave oftentimes prisoners on the cross for weeks until they Decomposed and animals ate them, and eventually it would be some slave's job to scrape the remains and discard them into the dump, and they were not afforded a burial. So, the fact that Jesus was not still remaining on the cross not only is uh, important in the story, but it's important historically because we know that after Jesus's flesh in the flesh perished on the cross, we know a couple of guys stepped up, Joseph of Arimathea, historically who lived, who we can point to in the record and know and recognize who he is, who was secretly a believer, offered his family tomb, and he and another Pharisee collected the body of Jesus and placed it in the tomb. We know that the religious community of that time, the Pharisees, were highly concerned Because of the radical faith and following that he had developed. And they actually went to Rome and Pilate, who was in charge, and and pleaded with him. Although it was unusual to do so, to post guards, Roman centurions, at his tomb. Because they were afraid that the popularity and that uh, the, the incense and rise of the crowd would not end with his death. Unless they assured that he remained in that tomb. We know all of those things historically to have happened. We also know that Mary went to go and visit the tomb, not knowing how she'd get in there, that she brought spices and clean wraps. I struggled to understand why she would bring spices and clean wraps until I realized, come on, fellas, two fellas got him ready and put him in there. And I'm certain on some level Mary thought, the least I can do. Come on, is prepare him properly. And so we pick up our story, and here's Peter, James, John, the rest of the disciples, all having experienced this horrific and and shell-shocking event. And where do we find them next in the story? Remember, Peter's faith activated. He recognized and declared in faith who Jesus was after experiencing that. Tragedy hits. Sometimes tragedy does something to our faith. Sometimes we do, I believe, what Peter did. And we hole up. And we barricade ourselves in. And we wait for the storm to pass, wondering, God, what could it be that you're doing here? And this is where our story picks up in John chapter 20, verse 18 and following says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told him the things that he had said to her. Verse 19, look at what's happening here. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, listen, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he had showed them his hands and his sides, the disciples were overjoyed that they had seen the Lord. Now, I got to tell you what's happening here. This is amazing. First of all, can we also acknowledge, uh, ladies, thank the Lord for some courageous women in the midst of uprising and the midst of pressure and, and all of the things that were happening in that community who were willing to go and investigate. Because here's what blows my mind. We know clearly that after Peter declared that, hey, I think who you are is the Messiah, that Jesus began to teach, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, but in three days I'm going to rise again. We also know clearly they didn't believe him. Because if they believed him, where would they have been on that third day? They'd have been camped out, right? I could imagine the disciples out there like, here he comes. All right, you guys, like a countdown on New Year's. 10, 9, 8, all the way, 4, 3, 2, 1. And the tomb just rolls open and bam, out steps Jesus. And like, you know, we are the champion starts playing or something. I don't know. Something happens awesome like that, right? You would assume that if their faith had, had activated the way it says that they had activated, that they had understood who Jesus was, that that's where they would have been in that moment. But they weren't. They were back at the house. They had locked the doors for fear. Fear had crept in. Doubt had crept in. All of those things that, that, that we do when our faith experience with Jesus doesn't match what we think should happen. When it doesn't line up with our best example idea of how the earth should work. When heaven and earth seem to be at odds and we're not sure why. They did what we would do. They retreated. They locked the door, they barricaded themselves in, and they waited for the worst. And here's what I love. Jesus, we never talk about how awesome some of what Jesus does is. We never talk, do you see in this text that they're inside a locked room, and then bam, there's Jesus. I don't know if Jesus walks through walls. I don't know if Jesus teleports. I don't know what Jesus does, but his physical body is in the room, And the door hasn't opened yet. I don't know if that freaks you out, but I think that's amazing. These guys are like, we don't know what we're going to do. We don't know what we're going to do. The door's locked. Hope they don't come and kill us. And all of a sudden, Jesus is like, hey, guys, what's going on? Now, I love Luke's account. In Luke 24, he's like, he's a ghost. They assume that he's a ghost. And so Jesus is like, whoa, 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 relax. Touch my hands. Touch my physical body. In Luke's account, it says they made a fish and had him eat it. That's like the total proof that he's really there, right? Can you imagine just like, are you seeing this? Am I seeing that? Are you seeing this? I haven't eaten for a while. I hit my head. You know, I, I, what is happening? Is that really you, Jesus? Are you seeing this? And, and, and they have this encounter with Jesus. And here's what I love about Jesus. Here's what I think is real for us. Sometimes we close the door. Sometimes we close our hearts. Sometimes we close our circumstance. Sometimes we just <clears throat> wall up. And Jesus isn't intim- intimidated by the barriers that we put up. And he doesn't run from us when we run from him. He runs to us. And he says, hey, guys, I'm still here. Not only am I still here, but even though what you saw was horrible, I was still in control. And even though it didn't meet your expectation of what was best on earth, I still knew what was happening. And I'm still in control. And my father's still on the throne. And I still love you. And you're still the guys and gals that I love. And I call by my name. And that's who you are. Guys, that's amazing. I don't know if you understand how good of news that is. I love this. They were afraid. Jesus gets right into their presence. He's not distance. And I love that he says, hey, peace be with you. Can you imagine Jesus just shows up and he's like, peace. That's what he led with. He's like, hey, just relax. I know you're going to freak out. Peace. Jesus. Verse 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. And this is amazing. He reestablishes right away who they are and who he is. He says, don't forget who you are. Just because tragedy hit, don't forget who you are. Just because tragedy hit, don't forget who I am. Don't let your faith get deactivated because what happened doesn't match your expectations." He said, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, I love this, it says he breathed on them. He just wanted them to know he was there. He just ate a fish. (sighs) Sorry, I just, that's what happened. It says he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. He's just recommissioning them. He's establishing them. He's preparing them for what's about to happen. We know in Acts that the Holy Spirit's gonna show up and empower them, that they're gonna establish the church, that what they do in those moments, in just about 40 days from right when this is happening, and what they do in those moments is the reason that we're here today. They establish that. He knows that that's about to happen, and he can't have them on the bench. He needs them in the game. Sometimes we want to retreat and get on the bench, and he's like, We need you in the game. I love this. Verse 24. Now, Thomas, poor Thomas, called Didymus, one of the 12. He wasn't there when the disciples, with the disciples, when Jesus came. Now, listen to this. Who do we say that I am? is the point of the whole message, right? Verse 25. So the other disciples said, We have seen the Lord. Once again, declaring in faith who it is they've seen, what has happened. We've seen the Lord. And Thomas, it says, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side. I will not believe it. Hmm. I think sometimes we give Thomas a bad rap right here. i has got to be honest with you. Can, can I? All right. Have you ever pulled a prank on someone? You ever went to summer camp? Pull the prank on someone, right? You did a snipe hunt or you did something, you know, like, hey, yeah, there's a, you know, there's a, ooh, I saw, you know, whatever it is, right? We all saw it and you didn't see it. No way, it's scary, whatever it is, right? And can you imagine, I can just imagine Thomas, whatever reason he's not there. We have no clue why he's not there. Maybe he was the only one with enough courage to not be hiding in the room. And he gets no credit for having that courage. I don't know. Maybe he's hiding somewhere else. I'm not sure where he's at. Maybe he had no courage whatsoever. I just know we have no indication of why he wasn't in the room, hold up with everyone else. But when he shows up, they're like, dude, you missed it. He ate a fish. And we touched his hands. And it was like he wasn't in the room. And then bam, he was in the room. And he breathed on us. And we smelled the breath. It's the same breath. And it was, you know, it was awesome. It was really him. We saw him. And Thomas is like, get out of here. Are you kidding me? Like I wasn't, I'm I'm not the youngest, right? I I don't don't try to play a joke on me because I was the guy that wasn't in the room. And Thomas is pragmatic and practical. You ever, you ever watch in a game and it's just like over and your team's losing and you're depressed and you get in the car and, and you drive away and you get home and someone texts you, we came back and we won. And you're like, I don't believe it until I get home and I turn Sports Center on and I see the highlight and I see the shot go in or the touchdown score or the ball go over the fence until I see it. I don't believe it. You're just messing with me. That's just Thomas. He's like, hey, I didn't see what happened. So I am not going to buy your story. Mama didn't raise no fool, right? Thomas needed confirmation, and here's what I love. Jesus was absolutely okay with Thomas needing confirmation. He was absolutely okay with Thomas needing to experience him for himself. As a matter of fact, I'm going to let Thomas tell you the story himself.
2: My name is Thomas, and I struggle with doubt. I followed Jesus for years, from the very first day he called me. I saw things so amazing they defied explanation. I believed. But then things fell apart. I witnessed the betrayal that led to the cruel march to Calvary and his agonizing crucifixion. I survived, but everyone I knew scattered. My world collapsed. Then came news of the empty tomb, the very first Easter, but I resisted. The image of his broken, lifeless body was still burned to my memory. I experienced his death. Then I couldn't believe. Not until I see the scars with my own eyes and touch them with my own hands, I told the others. I wasn't ready to put my trust in something again. But Jesus came to me. He knew my doubts. He even named them, but he wasn't angry. He didn't rebuke me or dismiss me. He looked at me with those familiar eyes and offered me his scarred hands inside. In that moment, I experienced his resurrection, and I believed. I know firsthand it's difficult to believe in what you can't see. And yet all around you are people whose lives and stories have scars that bear witness to the meaning of Easter. Yes, these people have been wounded, but they've experienced redemption and healing through Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were meant to rescue the doubters, the debtors, and the broken, people like you and me. He met my doubts with grace and love, and he only asked one thing of me,
0: Thomas, I think when we get to heaven and meet Thomas, he's not going to want to be introduced as doubting Thomas. (laughs) I think he's going to want to be Thomas who believed. I think that's going to be a better picture of who he was and who he is. I was thinking about Thomas and his demand that he experience God personally. And I know sometimes I get in a demanding mode with God. I forget that God's not some genie in a bottle that I can just demand things of, but that instead he's a good father who loves me and cares for me. I forget that faith is what activates my relationship with God. In John chapter 20, we read the rest of Thomas's story. Verse 26 says, a week later, his disciples, they were in the house again. So for a week, they've been telling him, we saw Jesus. He's like, get out of here. Not buying that. But for a week, they experienced that. And this says, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Uh Uh-oh, here he comes again. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it to my side. Stop. Doubting and belief. And then Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, who do you say that I am? And then it's beautiful. Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those, come on now, who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Here's what's amazing and controversial about Jesus' statement, that if you believe, he says you can have life in him. Belief is what activated that. I love that Jesus was okay with the faith struggle. He was okay with us wrestling with the facts and the data. I I love that Jesus was okay with us having to experience something from him to know him. I love that he welcomed that and met us right where we are at. I was thinking about all the ways we come to believe. I was thinking, you know, I don't only believe who Jesus is because the Bible tells me so. I do believe the Bible. Don't hear me that. But not just because the Bible tells me so. I believe, I believe more because I believe the men and women of the Bible who tell me so. I believe because Matthew, a tax collector who was hated by his community, changed his life around and became a servant. And the stories recorded for me. I believe because Matthew believed. I believe that Mark, because Mark believed. Because he heard from Peter, most likely. And Peter told him the story, and he wrote it down. I believe because Luke, Luke went from person to person and interviewed them and said, here's the story of what it was like to be with Jesus. Tell me what it was like. And he talked to eyewitnesses who walked with him, who, who shared meals with him, who witnessed miracles. I believe because Thomas came around. Because Thomas asked hard questions and waited for hard answers before he believed. I believe because James believed. Now, I don't know if you've heard me say this, but this is amazing. James is the literal biological half brother of Jesus. I got a half brother. I got to tell you something for that half brother to convince me that they are the son of God, that they are God would take more than he's capable of doing. He couldn't do it with magic tricks. He couldn't do it with water to wine. He couldn't do it by a food miracle. I still wouldn't believe it. You know what it would take. I would have to see with my eyes him dead. Watch him go into the grave. Days would have to go by. And then I'd have to see him again in the flesh. I don't know about you. Growing up with Jesus as a big brother had to be awful. Why can't you be more like your brother? I'm not saying Mary said that. I'm just saying there's no way that she didn't. And the, the shift... Of going from that position. You got to understand. We see James in the scriptures. In the story before. And he thinks Jesus is insane. He's like we got to hide him. Before his craziness gets out everywhere. To go from there. To James literally history tells us dies. Because he will not deny that Jesus is God. Gets thrown from a roof. That's who James became. I believe because that history i believe because the apostle paul who hated christians hated them with a passion they represented a threat to everything he grew up to hold dear met jesus and changed everything about him changed as a matter of fact 22 years after the resurrection of jesus paul writes this in 1 uh, corinthians chapter 15 verse 3 He's riding to a church in Corinth, which is nowhere close geographically to Jerusalem. But these people have put their faith and hope in a poor Jewish carpenter out of Nazareth. There was actually a saying at that time, like, what good could come out of Nazareth? No one expected anything good out of Nazareth. No one did. But they had put their faith in a poor Jewish, and it had risked their lives in order to do it. And Paul says to them, 1 Corinthians 15 3, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. This is 22 years later after the event that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more. Listen to this. Maybe you've never seen this before to more than 500 Of the brothers at the same time. And then catch this. Most of whom are still living. He's like, they're over in Jerusalem. You can go see them. We'll bring them over. We'll do some interviews. They'll tell you the stories. And then I love this. Though some have fallen asleep. I just, I was struck by that language. Because of the hope that Paul received, he could not describe them as dead. He couldn't. Because he knew That his Savior had faced death head to head, had gone, come on, toe to toe, had gone into the grave and come out victorious. So when he was talking about his brothers who had gone to sleep, he had every expectation that he would see them again. That's what faith looks like. That's what hope looks like. Verse 7, then he appeared to James. Come on, you had to, you had to mention James because there's just no way. That's my favorite side story of the whole scripture. James became a believer? Get out of here. I couldn't do I don't know what it would take, even if he rose from... I'm sorry, I love my brother, but no. Just no. <laughs> then to all the apostles. Verse 8, and then last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Hey, people of Corinth, you having a hard time believing? Let's go meet some of the folks who experienced it, who wrote about it, who told their story, who met the risen Savior. For Jesus to say something as controversial as who do you say that I am and expect us to answer it. Last week, I told you when he spoke on the cross and said it is finished, it's paid in full. When we experience something being paid off, we like a deed or we like a receipt or we like something that gives us evidence that what you said is done is done. And this is the evidence that he rose on the third day, that he met Mary, that he went somehow through the door, through the hardness of hearts, through people who were skeptical and said, here I am, watch me eat a fish. Smell my breath. I'm here. That he came back for Thomas. That he loved Thomas enough that even though on his faith journey he had he had he had just surrendered, he said, no, 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 I'm still here. And that he told Thomas, not everyone's gonna get to see what you see, but they're gonna get to hear what you say. That's why Paul says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God get to experience faith by hearing what God did it's controversial it's crazy it's radical and for 2,000 years it has changed and shaped history and here's the thing all of us have to answer that question in some way who do you say that he is is he a great teacher yeah but he's more Was he a prophet? You bet. But he's more. Was he the son of God? Was he God? The evidence says. The witnesses say. So who do you say that?